Welcome to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast, where you go behind the scenes with financial planner, speaker, and consultant Michael Kitsis to hear stories of how leading financial advisors navigated the inevitable challenges that arise on the path to success and get insight from leading industry consultants about how to break through to the next level in your advisory business. And now here's your host, Michael Kitsis. Welcome, everyone. Welcome to the 145th episode the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. My guest on today's podcast is Roger Pine. Roger is the co-founder of Holistaplan, a new kind of tax planning software for advisors built to systematize and automate the process of reviewing a client's tax return to find the potential planning opportunities. What's unique about Roger, though, is that he previously spent 10 years as a financial advisor in an independent advisory firm where he taught himself computer programming on the side, implementing custom technology improvements for his own firm, before deciding to shift into becoming a full-time fintech entrepreneur himself. In this episode, we talk in depth about the holistic plan software that Roger developed, from leveraging optical character recognition to scan all the relevant information from an entire tax return PDF in just seconds, to converting that information into relevant tax observations about the client's tax bracket, phased-out deductions or tax credits, and eligibility for tax preference contributions to retirement accounts to the forward-looking tax planning tools that Holistaplan is now building to identify the client's true marginal tax bracket, take into account all the phase-ins and phase-outs, to make better forward-looking tax recommendations. We also talk about the ever-blurring lines between where a CPA's tax services end and a financial advisor's begin, the dynamics of trying to balance providing tax guidance and not unwittingly competing against potential CPA referral sources, and why Roger views Holistaplan's tax analyses as only the beginning of developing a comprehensive expert system that helps financial advisors craft more consistent recommendations across the full spectrum of the financial planning body of knowledge. And be certain to listen to the end, where Roger shares his own journey and what it's like to transition from being a financial advisor to an advisor tech entrepreneur, why he ultimately decided to take the leap despite being on a partnership and succession track at his current advisory firm, and his suggestions on what other advisors can do if they, too, see an opportunity to develop advisor technology solutions to fill the gaps from what's available in today's marketplace. And so with that introduction, I hope you enjoy this episode of the Financial Advisor Success Podcast with Roger Pine. Welcome, Roger Pine, to the Financial Advisor Success Podcast. Happy to be here, Michael. Thank you. I'm really excited about today's episode. We are you know, just a, a few weeks out here now from our XY Applying Network FinTech competition. It was something that we launched a couple of years ago, just trying to give more of a platform for technology firms that are building cool new stuff for advisors, You know, particularly serving next generation clients where just you really have to be efficient because their you know, dollars are often smaller and the revenue per client is often smaller. And you know, you guys, you were running a firm called Holista Plan that was a a finalist for the fintech competition, and then and then won the fintech competition for what essentially is a piece of software where you just give it a client's tax return, like the whole fifty or hundred page PDF for however long it is, and it does computer things on it in about seven seconds. It gives you an entire tax summary report, all the stuff you would need to know, a whole bunch of planning opportunities that jump out based on what they've got on various line items. And, and I just saw it the first time it came up and was like, 
oh holy crap this is just cool like i'm i am now i'm now excited about the future of advisor technology because this is cool stuff so wasn't surprised at all to see that you won the fintech competition but i just was excited to have you on the on the podcast and talk about like this cool tax planning tool thing that you guys created and i know you came out of an advisory firm so like you've lived this and made a thing for all of us and so i'm i'm just like excited to talk about this thing of magical tax planning software yeah absolutely you know you know when you create a brand new product that's never existed before the concern is always are people going to understand what it is you know when you invent a new category or a new product and what's been really fun for us is people get it right away when they see it they get it you know this is what i do but it does it faster yeah so it's been it's been a lot of fun and fintech was fantastic thank you for that opportunity had a great time at xypn live no, I, absolutely. You know, it's you know, we both lived this having, you know, having built advice pay of how hard it is when you're starting a a technology company for for the advisor space in particular, which is still kind of a, a small niche space relative to like, you know, making direct to consumer software where like 100 million people can buy your software. You know, the challenge for most firms is that it's just really hard to to get the word out about what you've created. You know, we had a little bit of a head start with Advice Pay because you know I, I kind of have this blog that <laughs> has a few readers. I've heard of it? So we had a few, I've heard of it. Yeah, yeah, we had a few ways to get the word out a little bit a little bit more and faster. And and so part of the goal in making the fintech competition was just let's you know use this growing SYPN platform to try to create a platform for software companies that don't necessarily have a big marketing budget to go do advertising and conference sponsorships and the rest and say, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll create a platform where you can get some media exposure and early advisor exposure and try to figure out like, you know, does anybody actually want to buy this and, and will you pay Mm -hmm. us for it? And do you really find this valuable? And, and what else do you want to see so we can make the solution better? Yeah. Well, it fits the brand, it fits the XYPN brand. I was really impressed with the people there. I mean, people are trying new business models, trying new technology solutions. And so of all the places to host a competition like that, I think XYPN was a perfect fit. So it really worked well. Oh, thank you. So so tell us a little bit more about just this software holista plan. You know, I, I've, I've described it as, as magical tax planning software. So that's maybe not the most articulate solution. So having actually made this thing and it is your baby, talk to us a little about the software, what it does, what you were setting out to do here. Yeah, I mean, in its in its current form, it it does kind of what you said, which is it starts with a tax return, a PDF tax return, and you know we still have to ask our clients for that, but then we, the advisor, can upload that into the software. The software then is tasked with reading the tax return and extracting information that it needs from that tax return, you know, off of schedule one, schedule a kind of going into the back and looking at some of the other more obscure forms. Then we run a set of algorithms, which I I only learned recently is that's what an expert system is. It's called an expert system where you take a bunch of data inputs and come up with some observations or outputs. Yeah. And we spit out a report that kind of says, here's some of the key figures on the return. Here's some we're not going to call them recommendations. They're observations, not actionable observations to talk about with the client. And that's kind of a one pager that that really quickly gives advisors some 
another touch point with their client. And we should be all doing tax return reviews anyway. That should be a staple part of our service. And then we kind of, just because people were asking for it, we built a projection tool as well. So then you can take those observations and say, okay, well, now let's run some numbers for next year. Let's take that capital gain or let's not. Let's do that Roth conversion or not. You know, what's going to happen with my self-employment income? And so really at the moment, it's the idea is it's, it's an end-to-end tax planning tool that starts with a document and ends with a deliverable to give to, give to clients. Very cool. Very cool. And and so can you talk a little bit more about just what do you like, what do you get as the output? What exactly am I handing over to a client? Like I, I saw it on the screen because I was sitting mm-hmm. in your, in your <laughs> demo at the, the fintech competition. You know, it's always a little harder to like describe software output by audio podcast, but yes, can you try to help people understand like what, what is this? What is it outputting? What is it ultimately producing or or like, what am I going to put in front of my clients exactly? Yeah. So originally when we first started, it was just that list of observations. It was just a bullet pointed list that said, Hey, you're in the 15% bracket, consider a Roth conversion. Or I noticed that you itemized and you, and you had charity. So you might want to double that up and take the standard in alternating years. That's where it started. Which are still good like good actionable items right there. Just, you know, you're in the tax bracket, consider a Roth conversion, you know, you're doing charitable giving, you got an opportunity to bunch the deductions. Yep. And that's still there. So that's still at the bottom of the report. But people were saying, you know, I also just put in front of my clients, here's the marginal tax bracket that you're in. And here's where you are with respect to Medicare Part B premiums. You know, if you if you have escalated premiums due to your income. And summary information about which, you know, there's a number of tax, we wouldn't call them loopholes, tax incentives that are based on your modified adjusted gross income. And so we kind of list out, okay, well, you're in the phase out for this particular thing, but you're over the limit for this and under for that. And so really, I mean, if, it, if I think of the real estate of the page, probably two thirds of it is just kind of summary information that is just less scary looking, you know, a a tax return is pretty much the most terrifying <laughs> piece of paper that a you know it's they yeah. have to make their own invoice for the biggest check they write all year you know <laughs> so they hate that thing and yeah. so if you can just even if you had no recommendations if you just gave them a way to read it and understand what was in it in a palatable way that's value add in and of itself that's a, that's a good point like just I don't know, tra- translating tax return into english is that's right is kind of a piece of this unto itself. And then, so I guess, so a part of this is just let's reflect back where people are like, Hey, if you didn't actually realize what tax bracket you're in, just here's a little, here's a list of the tax brackets and a little arrow next to the one you're in, which is, that's right. You know, not like not the fanciest thing, but a lot of clients don't actually realize where they are and have never visualized where that stacks up. And yeah, your output just shows them a little graphic with a little arrow. Like here, here's the bracket you're in right now. And here's what that means about your marginal tax rate. And, and, you know, I struck as well, you had, I think just all kind of the standard things that just, we all otherwise have to remember like, okay, is the, uh, is this client over the Roth contribution threshold? Are they over the deductible IRA individual contribution threshold, all these different phase out items that I know you, you had summarized on the report as well. So it just says like, yep, you know, you, can do a Roth conversion or a Roth contribution or no, you can't, uh, you are in the phase out zone for your qualified business income or not. And, and just listing those things out. So again, people just 
start to see like, here's all the actual stuff that's impacting my tax situation and where I stand. Right. And we as advisors, we know where to find that stuff. And we kind of take it for granted that we do, but this is all, you know, it's spread out over multiple pages of gobbledygook. The the marginal tax rate is not on your return anywhere. It's not listed anywhere. So all these sorts of pieces of information are just really terrifying to look at for the client. And and even though we know where they are, they're a pain for the advisor to collate all into one place. And especially if we're going to try to put together a deliverable for the client. So that was the idea is let's get it all in one place that's at least mildly pretty looking and so that we can have a, a meaningful conversation without just flipping through thousands of pages of, of a document they literally probably hate more than any other document in their lives. So yeah, that, so that's the report piece. And then, like I said, there, you can kick that over into a projection piece, which we didn't really anticipate having to build, but people were saying, hey, can you take this data you've read in and kick that into, I won't name the other products, but there's other products that do tax projections. And those other products, as far as we could tell, did not have the ability to, to import data. They, there were no APIs or even Excel-based uploads. So, Yeah. I'll own it. You know, I mean, we're a firm that uses BNA's income tax planner and and have for a long time. And you know, it's a it's a pretty darn robust solution for just you know analyzing a client's prospective tax planning situation. But whenever we're gonna do it, like someone has to manually key in all of the data about the client's current income and tax situation. Right. And granted, we're doing forward-looking projections. So sometimes you want to key a few of your own things. So you're trying to figure out like, well, what if I do a $50,000 Roth conversion next year? So you, you have to key some stuff, but... Yes, but that baseline information. We key everything. Yeah, like the, why can't we pull the... Ba- like you have a piece of software and a tax return is mostly electronic now. Like why can't we make these things talk together to each other? But no one's does. So we have to enter all that data manually. Right. Right. So yeah. So we ended up building, (laughs) we ended up building that. We didn't anticipate having to do that, but then we did that. But I'm glad we did because now it's, it's really is an end to end. You know, you can take the past, which is the existing document. You can look at the present, which is here's what we see from it. And then you can kick it into the future, which is the projection tool. Oh, I like that. I like that framing of like, the past is is summarizing you know just like where they stand on taxes the the present is your observations all these things like hey you know you're you're in a 15% bracket you could do a Roth conversion you're itemizing deductions maybe you could bunch them together and then the future is is this like forward looking tax projection tools right yeah so are you guys building something at the depth on the projection tools end of what like BNA income tax planner and CS planner and a few of those alternatives do right now where you can plug in like all the gory details, the client's tax situation, get a really detailed you know, projection in the future of here's what happens if we do this strategy or that tax strategy. I do not anticipate us ever getting all the way to hundred percent, like, a, you know, oil well depletion rates. I don't think we're going to do that. Right. Yeah. I guess like you can, you can get pretty deep if you yeah. really want to to go all the way down that road, right? At some point, you're just literally creating tax preparation software that just happens to be future looking. Right. Yeah. And so we, on our roadmap are things like, we need to make sure the QBI calculation is in there. We need to make sure AMT, at least a rudimentary version is in there. And, and then it's our job to tell the user that says, okay, you've reached the boundary of, of what this product's able to do. But, you know, you, you 
it's kind of an 80-20 rule. And, and like, again, we listen to what people are saying. So we, I have a very prominent button at the top of every screen that says, tell us what you think. And if people are saying QBI, all right, QBI moves up the, the list. We got to get that one done this week. So we'll never do it all. But I think we can get to a point where we can do most of what an advisor needs to do for quick and dirty analysis. So how do you get to the point of building something like this in the first place? Like, <laughs> where, where exactly did this did this come from for you? Like, are you a, a background of doing technology and computer programming kind of stuff? That you're like, hey, I got this problem in my practice. Damn it, I'm just going to make my own thing. Or, or did that come about? some other way? Like, how do you get to the point of making what is, you know, not, not, not exactly simple software, not only because tax planning is complex, but like you got to teach a computer how to find and pull out numbers from what could be like a 500 page PDF and know exactly mm-hmm. which numbers, the right numbers to pull. So what, what was the path and journey to making this software in the first place? Okay. So it's a long and sorted tale, but we'll go there. All right. So I, I mean, I, I did study engineering in college but my computer programming was didn't go much beyond like this is what a if statement is and this is what a for loop is. Yeah. And then but I would say about six or seven years ago, I take my New Year's resolutions very seriously. And one of my New Year's resolutions, I don't remember the year, was okay, I'm gonna learn how to make web apps. It was just something I wanted to learn how to do. We had some needs internally within the firm. And so I really worked hard on that. And I ended up, you know, going through a process and just getting better over the years. And we, we built a lot of software within our firm that we still use today. By the way, I'm going to use we a lot, even though I don't still work at Brio Financial Advisors. We'll get there, but uh, okay. it's just going to happen where I'm going to say we, even though that's not me anymore. But and, and what kind of like what kind of web apps were you making? All internal, but I mean, ways of, say, routing trades through the firm, for example, or our, our billing system. Okay. You know, creating invoices and stuff like that, tracking, pulling payments and stuff like that. That was all stuff that we that I, over the years, built. I kind of used Brio as my mad scientist laboratory to kind of build this stuff. But eventually, I had the skills to be able to spin up pretty rapidly prototype products. Okay. So... That's where the ability to do it came from. Now, the actual, what led me to actually building it was really almost two years ago now, I really started thinking about what is it, what can we do to really make financial planning super scalable? And the motivations for that are, were many, you know, as part of it was like, if we don't do it, Amazon's going to do it or someone else is going to do it. But also just, that's a really interesting problem, I think. How do you make financial planning just wildly scalable. And so I took a leave of absence from the company that ultimately became permanent, but I really wanted to tackle this problem. And so I was I had a year in the wilderness. Idea number 1 was I'll use a real it's pretty old technology but very scalable. It's called a book. Right? You write a book one time and you charge 20 bucks each time and everything you know about financial planning, you could put in one place and then you could right. get that out to thousands of people. It turns out that writing a book is not fun. Everyone who's ever told you about it yeah. tells you it's not fun. And so I quickly realized that there was a good chance I would ha- have no fun and make no money doing that. So I pivoted pretty quickly. Yeah, book, book writing is 
also not terribly lucrative is one of the things you usually hear from people who write books. You know, 0.1% of them make New York Times bestsellers that gets decent sales and almost everybody else makes no money. Yeah, yeah. So that fell by the wayside pretty quickly. But then I thought, okay, let's, how do you build something that would help consumers? So then I thought, okay, let's, instead of a book, let's go to uh, like a web-based application where I could, unlike a book, I can insert and remove content. I can, if someone has children or not children, I can modify what they see. You know, they don't need to see the chapter on estate planning with children if they got no children, that sort of thing. Right. So I spent eh, probably about half a year working on a website that did some of that stuff. What I found was, and again, this was direct to consumer. While I was really intrigued by this idea of a kind of choose your own adventure style product, I found I was spending all my time building educational content. Because, so for example, you and I threw out a few things earlier where we were talking about, oh yeah, if you double up your charity into alternating years and take the standard deduction, like you and I know what that means. And our listeners on the show are going to know what that means. But if you were to try to explain everything behind that to someone who you have never met, you can't right. see, you, you can't even look at them while you're explaining it to tell if they're nodding their head yes or they're lost. And so I was creating all this educational content, which again, wasn't quite in my wheelhouse. It wasn't what I wanted to do. So now we're coming up on the end of 2018 and it was New Year's resolution time again. <laughs> and I, I wrote to my study group, you know, look, my New Year's resolution for 2019 is I really need to figure this out or just, or just quit and, and do something else. And so I said, look, I'm going to scrap the, the direct consumer thing. Let's use that same decision engine technology, which now I know is called an expert system. And let's point that at advisors who don't need all that educational content. They need, they need the efficiency from, and the completeness of having that decision engine there. So fortunately for me, that got one of my study group colleagues, Kevin Lozer, pretty excited. And he said, Hey, I want to join you with this. So in February, we started kind of working at this holistic plan idea, which originally was just going to be a huge decision engine or expert system where you just enter as much information as you can about the, the client and it spits out some observations for you. That's where we started. That, that's, that was February. Kevin had the great insight of, I, I was building all these prototypes and I said, what about this screen where you enter all this information? And he's like, I'm not going to enter that information. There's, you just <laughs> gave me a screen with 150 boxes on it. I'm not going to do that. And I was like, well, maybe your, maybe your client would. He's like, I'm not going to ask my client to enter that stuff. And so that's when the idea of reading in the documents came from the OCR piece. Right. And, you know, it just kind of went from there. So, yeah. Very cool. Very cool. And so, is is Kevin the like a technology person or are you still primarily the technology person you've just brought your technology skills forward even further by now programming this to a much greater depth right yeah so I, I'm in charge of all product development yeah okay we, we do have one contract programmer helping with some of the optical character recognition stuff but otherwise the the site has been built by me and it kind of looks like it in some places. And Kevin, who still has clients, he still has an RIA. Kevin's running more of the customer service type stuff now and chasing all the various things you got to chase when the business starts to take off. Yep. 
customer service and sales and marketing is usually the the dynamic for technology firms. Someone someone makes the product and someone gets people to go buy it. That's right. And that was pretty quiet until XYPN Live came along. And now it's been, his job has gotten a lot more yeah. busy. Thanks to y'all. Yeah, I... It certainly, as we'd said earlier, like it certainly made quite a splash at the conference when, uh, you know, you just actually like feed in a client tax return, wait all of about seven seconds, and it's spitting out all this detailed information and insights from a hundred page tax returns. Like, yeah, it would have taken me a little bit longer to go through the tax return than, than what your software just did. Yeah. Do you have problems where the, I don't know, like the, the software can't follow it? I mean, how... How perfectly standardized are tax returns and how people fill them out? Because, you know, to the human eye, right? Like, hey, you know, whether you write 50,000 or 50, comma, zero, 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 or whether you put the dollar sign in front or not, like our brains pretty quickly translate there's a $50,000 line item there. But you're writing software, like you have to explain to the software each of those things and whether dollar five zero 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 and dollar five zero comma zero 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 and no dollar sign five zero 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 like you have to teach it all those things are the same number yep so is that been a challenge for you guys is there still issues with just boy this software would be a lot easier to write if people made tax returns more standardized <laughs> or is it is it standardized enough that actually that's pretty easy now it has been incredibly challenging i don't think we'll ever a hundred percent get there. I think yeah, I've learned a lot about OCR, that's optical character recognition. I've heard I've learned a lot about OCR over the past 6 months and it's just it's just really really hard. I mean that's that's all mm. there's to it. I think the legal the legal profession has a similar problem, right? They they have these discovery periods where they need to read through millions of documents and I've been kind of learning about how they handle OCR in that industry too and a lot of times the OCR is your first step and then it falls back to a human being. And, and that's what we've been doing. So when it fails and it does fail sometimes, then it, get kicks, it gets kicked into a manual queue and we'll enter it in. And that can be, you know, instead of seconds, that's minutes for it to get in. So, you know, we're, we're having to build infrastructure to be able to handle that. But it is true that the more returns that we see, the smarter the system gets, because just like what you said, the more we see this case or that case and we see patterns, we're able to anticipate those patterns and then the next time those go through. But right. I will say it is extremely challenging to get this thing. And I don't think it'll ever be 100%. So uh, people people going into the product need to know that there is a very good chance, especially you know if they dropped it on the floor and then stepped on it and then scanned it in on an angle. Like, yeah, that's going to get kicked to a manual queue, but then our job is to try to turn it around quickly. So, and, and so you actually have a support thing for that. If, if the, if the software tries to read the tax return and can't read it, you know, it, it'll send me a message that says, yeah, your, your tax returns kind of smudged and it looks like you spilled coffee on it. So yep. we've got someone who's going to analyze this manually and, and, you know, we'll get back to you in hours instead of the seven second thing, but you know, we'll, we'll, we'll turn it around to you. We just have to dig deeper. That's right. Yeah. So they'll get a pop-up that says, look, we need to look at this a little more closely. Sometimes it reads in, but then it has a low confidence score. And so we have to kind of go back and look through it. And so, Oh, so the, so OCR is actually at a place where it can say like, 
I think this number is 50,000, but I'm actually not positive because it was kind of smudgy and I can tell there's dirt on it. So right. someone actually double check this to make sure I didn't OCR it incorrectly. Yeah, the OCR software, pretty much all the packages available do give a confidence interval, not just for the page, but every single word or number that you read in, it'll give you a confidence score on them. Oh, interesting. That's not to say that it'll give you 100% confidence and it'll be totally wrong because that happens too. But they can give you some indication as to how how well it thinks it handled it. Absolutely. Interesting. Yeah. The ones that fail, I, th- I think of them like when I drop off my dry cleaning. You know, I, I drop it off at 9 in the morning. I get it by 5 p.m. And I know that I could iron my shirts faster than the seven hours that it takes yeah. to get my shirts back. But the fact that I can drop it off, go do something else, and then know it's going to be there at five is still very valuable to me. And so oh, absolutely. I don't think it, I don't think the fact that some of them fail negates the value of the software, you know, just, just load them up in the morning and then take a look at them after lunch and they'll all be there for you. You know? So I think it's still say the time saving is still there, but the instant gratification for some returns yeah. just, just won't be there, unfortunately. Well, but the, I have to admit, there is a difference between, you know, I don't get the instant gratification because like I, I load it up and it detects that my tax return is a smudgy, crappy scan. So it's, it's got to turn back to manual and like I'll get a response later today or tomorrow versus I put it into Holista plan and it gives me analysis and recommendations, but it turns out there was an error with one of the scan numbers and what it's spitting back to me isn't correct. Yeah, that's my nightmare. I don't like that situation. I don't want that I would to think happen. that's a nightmare for us on the advisor yeah. as well. Like, that's how do not you, good for anybody, yeah. How, how do you handle that or think about that, right? Because from the advisor end, you know, it, if I have to back check every single Holista plan scan to make sure the numbers are actually right and I'm doing a manual check on a tax return anyways, I'm starting to lose my time savings now. Right. Maybe you'll surface the ideas a little faster than what I could have done by actually typing them up page by page, but I'm losing some of my efficiency. So like, how are you guys trying to tackle that? Or how do you think about that as a challenge? Because you've, you've lived this from the advisor side. Yeah. So, and that's, that's why we have to have good tools on our side that identify, is it a scan or is it not? Is it on an angle or not? What sort of confidence levels are we getting back? And so we have pretty good information on our end as to whether it, it attempted to put mistakes in front of the advisor or not. And when that happens, they don't even have the ability to click on that report. Like I don't, I don't let them click on the report when I, when there's a chance the numbers are wrong, it gets, that gets pushed to manual queue. We take a look at it. And then only after we've looked at it, is it released for them? Oh, interesting. So, so in essence, like you're at least protecting against the, I served you up a wrong number by just saying the threshold really, really, really high on what it takes to actually pass through automatically to the advisor. If the, if the software detects at all that this might be a little out of whack, it just doesn't take much to kick it over to manual reviews so that you'll make sure that you don't serve up wrong information. Right, right. And we, and again, that that's another thing that's getting smarter with time too. I mean, it was one thing to just read in the numbers, but some of those numbers are interact with each other, right? I mean, the, the Schedule D number on Schedule 1 where we talk about capital gains, I can't remember what line it is, but that references Schedule D. And so if the OCR reads two different 
values for those two that feel that should be the same number, you know, it'll flag that. So we're able to start to build in more and more intelligence as we go along oh. for more error correction. Right. You can just all those internal consistency checks, like every single time a number on a subschedule feeds up to a master schedule, you can check on both ends and just right. get an automatic second verification about whether the first number you scan was right or not. Right. So that's what's been fun about the whole process is finding those things and just making it smarter and smarter over time. You kind of iterating through. That's been part of the part of the joy is just finding those little treasures that make <laughs> it better each time. And I guess like the first the first and primary message is everybody should do their tax return using electronic software and save the PDF that it gives you so there's no scanning at all. Yeah. Yeah, we're starting to see some statistics on on what what numbers are embedded PDFs versus scans and it's about we th- we expected it fully to be like 80% or like the pure beautiful returns straight out of the software, right? Right out of TurboTax yep. or whatever. We thought 80%. It's more like 60%. Okay. But, you know, I think over time we know where the direction that's going to go. It'll be more and more electronic. And and I and I suspect just scanning quality and focus will get continue to get better as well. I think so. Yeah. And I'm presuming then, if God bless you, get one of those people that still do their tax returns by hand. That's <laughs> yeah. just, yeah, we ain't doing that. That's at the moment, no. I've only seen a couple so far. There are some OCR libraries. I think the Amazon library. You know, these days now, you you don't have to roll your own OCR. You can. There are some API based OCR libraries. I think oh, the Amazon one claims to be able to handle handwriting, but. I'm going to be honest, that's probably going to be pretty low on our yeah. on our list of things to try to tackle. There comes a point where I would rather encourage clients to not do tax returns by hand yeah. than figure out how to read their handwritten yeah. tax return. Like, can I, I'll tell you what, I'll just buy you a copy of TurboTax. Yeah, no How's kidding. that? Yeah. <laughs> and, and so what are you envisioning the, the pricing is for software like this? That has been a learning experience for us because we really had no idea what we originally started with was like most software as a service models. We have a monthly, monthly charge, but it's been moving annual. Like more and more people are like, give us an annual amount. And so we have a metered right now as of us recording this on this very moment, who knows what it'll be in five minutes, but for 150 returns, it's $849 a year. Okay. It's for 300 returns, you know, that's your kind of sizable ensemble firm. It's $14.99 a year. And if you want to go above that, way above that, we've kind of had some talks about some enterprise level um, type arrangements. Yeah. Like I'd be happy to talk to you if you want to do more. Right. Okay. But I like, I mean, I'm thinking of just in my head. So like 150 returns for 850 bucks. I mean, we're talking five or six dollars. Yes. Per return. That's right. Is essentially is essentially what this comes down to, which, you know, to take an advisor on my team who might have spent thirty to sixty minutes at you know, thirty or fifty dollars an hour, all the way up to several hundred dollars an hour for senior advisors time, like five bucks for a return to save me an hour is kind of a crazy big cost savings if I was actually really drilling into looking at tax returns in detail in the first place. Are you suggesting we raise the price, Michael? 
Well, no, it's so it's <laughs> maybe, but I, it's a uh, it's an interesting double edged sword to me because just when I think about this in the in the marketplace, so so there's well, so there's some firms that are probably CPA style firms doing tax planning who would already pour through the tax return in detail, but if you just serve it up to them faster, it's just a flat out cost savings and and, and a great value for them. Right. And, you know, if anything, maybe it's it's too low for them because they literally will bill out their time. And if you save them an hour, that's like an hour they get back to bill someone at a couple hundred dollars. Yep. Yep. You know, then you get wealth management firms maybe aren't doing tax preparation, but they do a lot of tax planning. They have to get up to speed on their clients' tax situations. You know, in the past, like they would have maybe given this to a para planner to look and write a tax summary so that they can include it as a page of the plan. And now they're just going to grab the whole list of plan page output instead. And, you know, this is still saving me like an hour plus of para planner time at you know, whatever, $30 an hour, give or take something. And it costs me five bucks a return. So this gets to be good economics. Mm-hmm. I think the challenge, though, is there's only so many firms that like to open the tax door. And, you know, for the rest, I mean, to me, the fascinating thing about the software that you're creating here is you're, you're effectively trying to create a new category. Yep. Right. We got financial planning software in general. You know, we got portfolio management software and all the rest. You know, the tax planning software is just kind of a nascent category right now because, you know, we've got things like CS Planner and BNA Income Tax Planner, but 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 not much. And and I think, frankly, most of those are pretty dated <laughs> tools that, you know, as we already discussed, don't do things like just take the information from my tax return so I don't have to type this, which you guys have built. So, you know, you've got a fairly nascent category with some firms that just suffer through this because they're hardcore tax planning centric firms and then a whole bunch that either don't take the time, don't have the knowledge or expertise, don't want to go there and and a non-trivial number of I think broker dealers in particular that have spent 50 years writing on the bottom of every single page of every report this is not tax advice. <laughs> don't construe this as tax advice who who maybe even would be afraid of these kinds of you know, tax analyses and observations that, you know, someone may interpret as advice that they were trying not to give. So the the interesting question to me and and where I think you get price point sensitivity to figure out is is how many planning opportunities can you open up for firms that might not have actually done tax planning in the past mm-hmm. because they didn't have the expertise or the time. But Man, you just like you give me a piece of software, I upload it in seven seconds, I get a cool report that gives me a whole bunch of planning opportunities to add value to my clients. Like, yeah, I'll do that. Like that's that's good economics. I right? I only need one client where the software points out, like, hey, did you realize this client has like twenty thousand dollars of interest at a random bank? And if you do the math based on current interest rates, that means there's like a hundred thousand dollars or more over there. You might want to go touch base with them and see if you can find that money opportunity. Right? right, like it, it, it takes so little to turn this into a huge ROI because you find new planning opportunities, uncovered assets, you know, just things that save the client hard tax dollars. Where they say, okay, now I really, you know, I'm really happy with my advisory fee because you're saving me more than the cost of my fee. That to me has always been the strong opportunity around tax software in particular. Is is you know, it, it's one of the few things we do where it's really easy to point to how much money we we saved or created for the client. Like that's hard on the investment end because I can't take credit for a bull market. And I can say you would have done dumb things with your money without me, but I can't really prove it because it's a counterfactual. Yep. But I can point to a like, 
here's what your tax bill was going to be. We did this analysis. Here's what your tax bill is going to be instead. Like I saved you this much in hard dollar cash with this tax planning. And it only took me like seven seconds because actually I just handed it to Holista Plan. It told me what the key observations were and then I delivered it. Yeah. And I'll tell you, it's not just for existing clients. I know at least back in my advisory days for prospects, it was like magic. You know, you tell them in a, in a initial meeting, bring a tax return in. This is a tax return that their CPA has already looked at. And probably the other advisor across town has looked, has looked at. And if you can come up with a few observations, which invariably we were able to do in that prospect meeting, it was like magic to them. Because right. again, they hate this document. And the fact that someone can, in a matter of minutes, look through this thing and come up with something that saves them money, it's huge, really huge. I will say though, you know, I, we were talking about the the business case for a hu- really huge firm. I think that is really, a, they're thinking of it in labor saving terms. Yeah, efficiency. But yep. at the smaller end of the market, and we do actually have a monthly plan at 75 bucks a month and we have some discounts available that's for your smaller firms who they're less, they're maybe less interested in the time savings, but for them, the value is access to that checklist. They may not have built that infrastructure yet of a comprehensive checklist that looks at everything on the tax return and they can get that out of the box. So I was noticing at the conference actually that I was getting different reactions based on the size of the firms as to what was really appealing to people. And I hope that we can deliver both. I, I really want the checklist to be as smart as any advisor. I mean, if we can be as smart as all the advisors on the platform, then we'll be smarter than any one advisor on the planet because we have the collective wisdom of everybody involved. So I, I, that's kind of my long-term aspiration is how can we use this tool to become a way of kind of standardizing and expanding on what we can deliver for clients. I think that would be even bigger than even the efficiency gains. Yeah. And I mean, I can imagine at some point, you know, you, you make a web-based widget of this as an advisor. I put it on my website. I tell my prospects, you just go to my website, upload our, our your tax return, and like we'll start giving you some ideas immediately about what you can do to open up the the relationship with them. It's like, oh, and by the way, I just got a giant pile of information about my prospects. They uploaded their tax return. <laughs> Yeah, as a prospect, like tax returns are a good prospecting tool if you can you create enough value that that prospective clients are willing to hand it over because there's just so much information in the tax return, right? You get such a window into their economic situation. Yeah, totally. Yeah, that was actually our original. We still have the code buried deep down inside the the product, but our original idea for the product was exactly that, which is me, the advisor, I send out a blast email to all my clients. It says, Hey, if you want me to do a return tax return review, just upload it at this site. And when the client uploads it, the advisor gets a notice that says new returns come in. And then you can call them within like five minutes and say, Hey, thanks for the return. Here's some observations. Right. I think that'd be super slick, especially for prospects. We kind of went, we got away from the client uploading it. So now the advisor still has to upload it, but one day, I think that would be a really cool way to interact with clients to say, yeah. and not just tax returns. Anyone who wants me to review your auto insurance, it's auto insurance review month. Go ahead and upload it. Yeah, And not everyone will take you up on it, but the 20% who do, cool. I've got a whole list of things I can talk with you about right away. So that's what keeps me really excited about the product is the promise of doing stuff like that. So here's the part I'm going to ask though. You, you... 
you made this comment earlier of like, you know, we should all be doing tax return reviews anyways, because there's there's all these value creation opportunities. But I I feel like one of the things that increasingly has become a struggle in advisor world in recent years is is where you draw these lines between being a financial advisor, being a CPA, doing tax planning, giving tax advice, just giving tax guidance, which is like a euphemism for its advice, but it's not, so don't sue me for it. Mm-hmm. Like we have we have all these nuanced terms now that are starting to crop up around just how much tax stuff are you supposed to do or can you do or is it appropriate to do as an advisor who's not necessarily a CPA or an enrolled agent? And and so I'm just wondering again. I know you you live this inside of a firm as well, but how do you think about that line or where to draw that line of what should an advisor do and what is beyond the scope of an advisor to do? Huh. I mean, from my perspective, I mean, we were in an ensemble firm, and when we were doing tax returns, we were doing reviews. We were using the collective wisdom that had been built up over a number of years in that firm. So I, I honestly felt very comfortable delivering, we won't use the word tax advice, but delivering tax observations to clients that they could then talk with their tax professional about. I felt very comfortable doing that. And I think the very fact that we kept finding stuff, you know, we would find errors on returns. I don't know what your experience is, but our our error rate on when we look at returns prepared by professionals was as much as like 30 to 40%. That's a real value add. Yep. And so to not do it, I think, is an incomplete service, frankly. And so, but that's a problem. You know, some people just don't have the bandwidth to be able to do that and then and then expand that out into all areas of financial planning. And so that's why we need tools to help us do that more efficiently. And I really love the idea of what my my friend, Dr. Nathan Harness at Texas A&M calls normative practices. The more our profession has normative practices on how to do a tax return review, that helps us be more efficient. It helps us be more consistent in the product that that goes out to clients. And probably in the long run, will probably protect us as advisors. Because if we say, hey, look, I'm just following the normative practice. This is how you do it. Yeah. This is how you do a tax return review. And I'm just doing what everyone else does. That probably would protect us the way it does in other commoditized areas of the of what we do as financial advisors. That to me is has been the gap in our advisor world for for quite a while now. And I think particularly with CFP board's new fiduciary standard rolling out next year, where ultimately one of the key things that defines whether you whether you followed a, whether you met the obligation for fiduciary standard, it's actually not really about the outcomes. It's about the process that you followed. Mm-hmm. Right. The the way a doctor avoids being found guilty of malpractice when a patient dies on the operating table is there's a very clear set of standard operating procedures around here's how the procedure is supposed to be done. Here are the known complications and risks. Here are all the steps you're supposed to do along the way. And if you followed the protocol and an unfortunate outcome occurred, you know, the the professional isn't liable. We just recognize that sometimes unfortunate outcomes occur, right? And our advisor world, the most obvious one. And it's like, as long as you followed, you know, you crafted an appropriate investment policy statement, you followed the investment policy statement. The fact that the market got went down is not your liability as the advisor because you had a process and you followed the process and it was a defensible process. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. what struck me in our financial planning world is frankly, the moment you get out of investment stuff, 
there actually really aren't any normative processes established that you can say like, well, you know, I looked at these 11 line items and these key areas of the tax return. So I, I did my duty and due diligence in creating tax observations. Sorry, I missed that one other thing, but that's not a normal thing you would have to look at. And we just don't have that framework. See, it actually worries me a little with the CFP board standard coming that, you know, if, if someone says that advisor didn't follow a fiduciary process around tax planning or insurance advice or something like that, I'm not even sure how you judge what they did to figure out what is what is the accepted practice yeah. so that you can then figure out if they deviated from accepted practices. Yeah. The cool thing around holistic plan is is you, you're going to kind of set those practices because Frankly, once you automate it for a couple of dollars tax return, there's really not a good excuse for anybody to do less than that. And and it's not just, you know, when we started on day one, it was whatever was in my brain and Kevin's brain. Right. But over time, we're starting to incorporate. I just put in a, a, an update two days ago based on some change to the language on how we handle Roths from one of our subscribers. And so now I was able to put that in, and now every single subscriber gets access to that good idea on right. how we talk about Roth conversion. And, and so that's, again, that's what really gets me. You know, I, I like the OCR thing. That's a cool parlor trick. But really, when it comes to really changing the profession for the better, this idea of not just the efficiency, but the consistency and completeness of, of what we do to be able to go to mm. go home at work and say, you know, I did a fully complete job on that tax return review. I don't think I missed anything on that. That's a really good feeling. And, and if you can validate that based on the fact that all these other people have contributed to that, to that process is really exciting to me. That's, that's what gets me excited about holistic plan. Yeah. Well, and, and, and that's the thing that I think gets really interesting when you start thinking about solutions like this in the context of a of a larger firm. You know, we we go through this at Pinnacle because there's you know 15 odd advisors in various capacities at the firm. And you know, candidly, like one of the most nerve-wracking things as the as an owner, as a partner in a multi-advisor firm is sitting around wondering, like, do all 15 of these advisors do the analysis? either the same way, the right way, do they all do it consistently? Like if I gave them the same tax return, all these different folks, would they all come up with the same conclusions? If I gave it to one of our newer associate planners, would they do the right analysis? And if not, like who's over their shoulder error checking to make sure that they did it right. And, you know, the, because again, there's not a lot of standardized process around how to do things like analyze a tax return. And so the, the, the striking thing to me around software like this, once you're in a multi-advisor firm, is I know everybody's going to get the same consistent thorough analysis because the software did it. Now, you have right. to figure out what to do with those observations. So I, I don't think that undermines the value of an advisor. Like your, your value is not reading a tax return and spotting an unusual number. Right. Your value is what are you going to do about that? What are you going to recommend to the client? What is the planning opportunity or strategy that emerges from it? But at least knowing that every return gets thoroughly vetted and read and evaluated is a pretty big deal if you're a multi-advisor firm and you worry about things like process consistency and advice consistency in the first place. Right. And similarly, I, I said this at in our presentation at the FinTech competition, but same thing goes for someone who's just starting out. You know, if you've been in business for three months, 
I mean, how can you be sure that, and if you're a solo sitting in your, in your basement, just starting out and how, like, how do you know if you're, you don't have a checklist. I mean, right now in your firm, I know in my old firm, we would combat that inconsistency problem by building processes, detailed checklists, templated, you know, reports and stuff like that. But that takes years to build up that infrastructure, right? You're basically building a holistic plan for your firm. If you're just starting out, I mean, that infrastructure is very hard to build. I, I was really glad to see that at XYPN, y'all were helping people build that infrastructure. You, you've hired someone to kind of take people through creating a financial planning calendar and, and a process because it, it's it's such a great idea because that can take years and years for people to do. And in the meantime, while you're learning, are you learning on your client's dime? Is that the right way to do it? So, Very cool. So- so talk to us more about you know, your, your path of how you came to the advisor world. You, know, you talked a little bit about kind of the, the, the deviation away from the advisory firm and into holistic plan, but how did you get to advisor world in the first place? Yeah. Is this a, like always wanted to be an advisor when I grew up, became <laughs> an advisor or, or what was the journey for you? I think like most people, I didn't know the profession even existed. I studied engineering in college. I spent all my 20s as a as a consultant in the energy business. Uh, a lot of stuff on trading and risk, a lot of oil and gas type stuff. But the way I got into the profession was my wife Natalie, she knew about the profession. She knew that there was such a thing as financial planning because her mother Janet Brio founded her firm in 1986, Brio Financial planning and then became Brio Financial Advisors. So Natalie, we were living in London at the time. We were living abroad and Natalie was working at a hedge fund and doing some investment banking before that. But she, when we contemplated moving back to the US, she was studying for the CFP. She was going to try working at this, at this business that she had grown up knowing about. And so she was studying for the CFP. And I don't know how it works now, but with the College for Financial Planning, they would mail like a big stack of books for each module, Yep. right? Yep. And so we would get those and I was just kind of looking over her shoulder. I was like, hey, I'll, I'll take a look at this. And I started reading them and I just really found it really fascinating. And so it reached a point where I would get ahead of Natalie and they wouldn't send you the next round of books until you took the the unit exam. And so I'd be like, like, you got to take the exam. I want to read the next book. (laughs) I was getting on her case to take the exam so I could get the next round of books. And so, yeah. So when we moved back to the U S she joined Brio, I spent one more year in, in energy. I was commuting to show in Houston, but I, I took the CFP exam even before I started working. I had taken the CFA, so I didn't have to do the education. Although I had read all the books, like I said, Okay. And then, yeah, I joined in the fall of 2008, which was kind of an eventful time to join a financial planning firm. Yeah. But yeah, I spent 10 years there in that firm. So yes, it was my mother-in-law who founded the firm and my wife and me. We were all working there and we had about 13 employees total. Interesting. And and what was your role there when you when you came on? Like, were you doing investment analyst kind of stuff because you had your CFA as a background or, or were you targeted at the, the client facing side? Paraplanner. Okay. Yeah, I was, I, I started out in the mailroom, you know, I was supporting well, you, advisors. You were, you were the son-in-law. So, you know, I was the deadbeat son-in-law. They had, they had to put him somewhere. Right. <laughs> so, yeah. So 
I started as, as a pair planner and, you know, that was a great way to learn the ropes. And I eventually became an advisor. Natalie and I bought into the firm. We bought half the firm and then we were partners with Janet at that point and, you know, running the firm with our own set of clients. And I was there for 10 years. You know, that, that's a whole other podcast, I'm sure, about succession and family succession. But we spent those 10 years going through that process you hear about at conferences, which is how do you take the firm that centers around a charismatic founder to a truly ensemble firm? And, you know, we went through all those ups and downs over the years to get to that point. But but we I, when I exited, that was, that was really something that we achieved. And that's something I'm very proud of. And so... So I just I am curious about this journey. So how do, how do you end out in a firm where you're kind of heir, heir apparent to be the successor or heir apparent with your spouse to be joint successors, and and then you go a different direction. You're not at the firm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and so that that took a lot of soul searching because we were certainly on a path where the idea would have certainly the easiest route would have been. Natalie and I eventually buy out the rest of Janet's share, and then we're running that firm and bringing on other partners. Just, I, I was really intrigued by this problem of efficiency, and and deep down, I think I wanted to to start my own thing. It is very satisfying to take an existing business and take it to another level, and I think we successfully did that. But I always kind of had this thing eating at me to try to start my own thing. So I, I'd be lying if I didn't say that was wasn't part of it. But, you know, it took, it took multiple years to admit that to myself and get to that point. And then, you know, exiting the firm, you know, you know, when you're a partner in a firm and you leave, that is disruptive to everybody involved for sure. Yeah. And when you're married to one of them, that's disruptive as well. So I, it was certainly not an easy thing for any of us to do, but sitting where I am now, looking back, I'm glad for everyone's sake, that we did that. I'm having a lot of fun doing a list of plan. And I think the firm has has reached a, a, a higher plane by having deadbeat son-in-law out of the way. So I think ultimately it was good for everyone. But yeah, oh man, it was, it was tough. It's tough to make a change like that for sure. So talk to us about just the, I don't know, the, the journey of how you come to that conclusion to make the change. Because this, like, this is an area that I'm I'm fascinated by that, you know, I, I mean, I've long found just one of the differences between, you know, the, the really successful folks and the rest is a lot of times the, the really, you know, like everybody has some dreams and things in their head that like, wouldn't it be cool someday if I did blank and a subset of people like you just somehow get to the point where you actually pull the trigger and make that leap. And for most of the rest of us, we just kind of think about it for the better part of our lives, but then can't can't quite make the leap, take the risk, do the transition. So like what was it that was going through your head or the or the or the process of trying to figure out like am I am I really going to make this this leap? I, I think it's hard enough for most just to move away from a firm, never find a firm that's family, a firm that you're buying into with your spouse. Like that's a, <laughs> a particularly complex question and discussion, I'm sure. So like, how do you, how do you get there? Yeah. I mean, I have to acknowledge first, I mean, there's enormous 
privilege associated with the fact that I, you know, we had a steady income, we have our health and all these things that otherwise would have made it challenging to make that leap. You know, if I, I have two kids, if I had two kids and we didn't have say the income that Natalie gains from being with the firm, it would be very challenging to say, okay, I'm going to go try three different things before I land on something that works. That, w- that would have been very hard to do. But, you know, if I roll the clock back, it probably started, I mean, deep down in my brain, when I, when I said, I'm going to learn how to make websites, I knew that that would be a skill that would be valuable for the company. I, I still maintain that any firm that reaches, say, 20 to 30 employees needs to have a full-time developer on staff. Hmm. And I kind of anticipated that one day being a thing. But probably deep down, I thought, you know, I'm just going to, this is me buying an option for the future to be able to create something. And I continued to work at that and get better at that. And then when the opportunity rose, I was able to to capitalize on it. But, you know, it helped. I had a supportive spouse and we financially were able to make that leap. And I, you know, midlife crisis, man, it's a powerful thing. <laughs> you start to hit 40 and you're like, you know, I got to make a choice. And it's not fair to anyone else involved for me to just coast you know, it's not fair to me, but it's also not fair to the people around me. It's not fair to the people who are employees of of this firm who are, are counting on me to be fully engaged for the sake of their careers. So I had to decide. And, and when I looked at what I wanted to be doing from 40 to 50, I decided I wanted to try something new and I wanted to do it in software where I can create something really quickly and, and interesting. Interesting. And how do you break the news? <laughs> Let me think back to that. We had we had one employee who he kind of had a quarter life crisis. Okay. Not a midlife crisis, but he 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 exited the firm to to go on a, on a mission trip with his family. And he gave like 9 months notice, which in a way is very helpful, but in a way is kind of like, man, what do you what do you do? You know, how much do you invest in this? I appreciate the advance notice, but at some point, like four months into the nine months, you're kind of dead man walking yes. because you start transitioning duties off that person right away when you know they're leaving. And then at some point, it's like, appreciate you're still here, but why exactly are you still here? Yeah, it was very challenging. I mean, he he did it for all the right reasons. and, and oh, Absolutely. Yeah, like it's a very good thing to do, but just... Absolutely. When you kind of think about that playing out, like that, that really is sort of a slow motion exit. Yeah. So, but that really got me thinking like, okay, what would it, you know, cause I, in the back of my mind, I was thinking, okay, I, I need to think about this midlife crisis that I'm anticipating. And so I kind of had it in my head for quite a while. And then I talked with, fortunately, Fortunately and unfortunately, when your business partners are your spouse and and mother-in-law, when they're family, they are rooting for you on a personal level, even if it is detrimental to the business potentially, right? You know, if they were arm's length partners entirely, it might've been very different, but they knew that I had been thinking about this and it took me, you know, a year to really get to the point where I was ready to do it. But yeah, they, they were supportive because they were family. And, you know, that that helps. You know, when your business partner is family, you can cut past a lot of the there's other problems associated with it, but it's easier to trust the motivations of the other people and it's easier to judge the values 
of the other people involved, which is really, really helpful because a lot of times that's what causes a partnership to break down. And so the fact that we trusted each other and they knew that I, I was coming at it from a place of, look, I want you guys to do well, but I need to do this other thing. It took a long time, but we got there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and so how did you structure it? You kind of mentioned earlier this like leave of absence. So you didn't, is it that you didn't just quit? You sort of said like, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to take a year off and like figure out this thing. And if it works, I may not be back. And if it doesn't work, then like I'll, I'll see you in a year. I'll have scratched my midlife crisis itch, yeah. and then I can get back into this advisory <laughs> thing again. I mean, was that actually how you were setting it up with them? Cause I, I think it's an interesting way to, to frame it in a, you know, otherwise like a hard conversation. And I'm sure for a lot of people that have similarly thought about this of like, well, what if I walk away from my partner opportunity or being a partner at that point and my thing doesn't work out and then I'm just unemployed <laughs> having yeah. walked away yeah. from a <laughs> really nice opportunity to be a succession plan in a successful firm. I, I wish that we had something more structured. That's certainly advice I would give people is to really figure that out. Because the way we kind of did it was I certainly transitioned all my clients to other advisors in the firm, but it was, we kind of left it as, well, I can still help with other things and we can kind of transition. We can ease out of the firm, which I think was, we kind of like what we talked about, the dead man walking syndrome. Yep. I think that was exactly what ended up happening. We didn't call it a leave of absence. We didn't call it a sabbatical. We called it, I don't know what we called it. Roger's going to go work on another project, but he's still here helping where he needs to. Mm. That was messy and it didn't need to be like that. And I I've, I've found that once we eventually said, okay, Roger is out. I mean, I, my my wife works there. I still, you know, she might bounce an idea off me now. And sure, then. sure. I still have signed a confidentiality agreement, yeah. you know, but but I'm officially out now. And I think that's been better for, for everyone. So I would definitely, for someone in this situation, like figure out the boundaries of what's in and out of scope hmm. and do it rather than one foot in, one foot out. That That's bad for everybody. Hindsight. We didn't know when we did it, but that's certainly, <laughs> I certainly would not just say, hey, we're going to figure it out, but I'm going to go try to work on some other projects. I think I was hourly. I don't even remember. I think like I you know, I went from a partner in the firm to like charging the firm hourly and like, what do you, am I going to like total up my time? Then we went to a monthly. It's just not clean. It's just not a, yeah. it didn't really work well. And so eventually that just culminated in, all right, I'm just going to make a clean break, which was okay because you had gotten some sense of where you really wanted to go with the holistic plan business. You were ready to dive into that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, I needed it too, right? I mean, Guys like you can run like 10 businesses at once, man. I, no, don't, no, I, don't, I don't have that kind yeah, of, I don't recommend it. I don't have that kind of brain power. So I, you know, I needed the focus as well. Yeah. You know, so I needed to kind of drop some, some other things. I was on a lot of boards in town, which when you're part of a financial advisory firm, that's part of your ground game, you know, building. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. But when you're a, when you're writing code in your basement, like being on boards and stuff is not advantageous. And in fact, it just takes away from what you need to do, which is focus on the creativity. Yep. And so it just, yeah, I kind of had to reprogram how I even organized my day and organize my life around a, a very different type of business. Interesting. And, uh, you know, there is a, I think there is an effect there as well. It's, it's kind of the old, was it Cortez 
burning the ships, you know, it's for anybody that thinks around taking a leap. I mean, one of the, one of the biggest challenges I find for most is, you know, the taking those leaps are scary. So we often try to somehow hold on to something, you know, hold on to the past for, for safety. It's like a life preserver. You know, Hey, if this doesn't work out, I can always go back to this other thing. Cause I didn't actually entirely let go of the old thing. So I'm keeping the door open and, you know, it, it seems like a prudent, rational thing to do, but you know, it, if you don't go all in on the thing you're trying to take a leap and create, you usually don't end up creating it. Totally. Yeah. And we have such a side hustle culture right now. I, I hear the word, I never heard the word side hustle until about five years ago, but yeah, you're totally right. I mean, like that's, I think that's kind of like the accepted wisdom now is start your dream as a side hustle and get paid to do it and, and off hours and but then you end up not doing any of the things well. Now, again, like I said, I, I can say that and I can go that route because I had the privilege of being financially secure from the business. I recognize that not everyone can do that. Yeah. But if you can, I mean, it really is true focus. People say follow your dreams, but it's like the reason you got to follow your dreams all in is otherwise you can't focus on it because you're doing all the other stuff. Yeah. It's an interesting challenge of, of just figuring out and you know, I get it, as you noted, not everybody can just take a a cold leap in a new direction. You got to build up to it at least a little bit, if only to get a little bit of revenue or dollars flowing in the new thing, so you can you can economically make the leap. But mm-hmm. if you're going to ease into it at least initially, I think at at some point you still have to define the parameters for yourself of what am I just going to take the leap? Because if you, particularly with a startup business, like if you wait to take the leap until it's really, really comfortable and the business has a whole bunch of revenue already, I can virtually guarantee you have now severely compromised the growth of what your business would have been. Right. Because if you got it, if you got it to that much in revenue by doing it as a part-time side hustle, imagine how quickly it would have grown if you actually went all in on the darn thing. Absolutely. And your competitors, if you're in a category with competitors, it's not their side hustle. That's yeah. what they do all day. So every day they get up and they're working on that thing that you're only working on between 8 p.m. and 1 a.m. I mean, yeah. it's going to be hard to win there. Yeah. At some point they'll say like, oh, that looks like a totally cool idea. We're going to take our full-time staff and produce in three weeks what you spent a year on. And then we're going to do your idea. Yeah. <laughs> That's, you know, yep. capitalism's a beautiful thing sometimes, but not, not, not always when you're on the receiving end of it. Yeah. So at some point you... I do think it's an interesting dynamic that, you know, as you said, uh, side hustles kind of become such a thing. You know, if you if you want to pursue your dream, started as a side hustle and build up to it, and 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 I don't think that's bad advice for a lot of very practical economic reasons. But mm-hmm. even the people I know that have done that successfully, virtually all of them waited far too long to make their side hustle their main hustle. And compromised a huge amount of their actual business growth opportunity in the process. Because mm. you just, you don't realize how much more you can grow your business when you're actually all in on it until you're all in on it. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yeah. And I, I've seen that this year for sure. And you know, the good news is, especially I'm talking software now, but so now I'm going to kind of refute what I said earlier <laughs> in software, at least the idea of building software as a side hustle, I think is a lot easier than it might have been, say, four or five years ago, because 
because of software as a service, because of things like Amazon Web Services, it's so much hmm. more. It's so much easier to bring a product to market. I mean, had I had I come up with the holistic plan idea, honestly, it, I mean, it, honestly, the hard part was just coming up with the idea, but building it, I guess I could have done as a side hustle because it is so easy now. Not easy. It's so much faster, especially with lean startup type methods to bring something to market. Yeah. So it kind of depends what industry you're in, I guess. But that's what's really blown me away is how quickly some of these tools allow you to scale up a business. If the idea is there and if the product delivers, yep. those tools are, are unbelievable. I mean, prior to XYPN, I, I anticipated needing more server space. And so literally in one minute, I was able to quadruple the size of our server. <laughs> yeah, you just you just go to AWS and like you just yeah. grab the little slider and drag it up. I'm like, congratulations, you now have more server power. I, I mean, imagine that five, ten years ago. Yeah. But I mean it just blew my mind. Or you actually need your engineers to spin up more servers. Yeah. Or or 20 years back where, you know, you you go to the conference and like if it's software's really popular and people are interested in it, it'd be like, I will totally mail you discs with our software in like six weeks as soon as we finish the next run and ban and and package them and mail them out to you. Yeah. And good luck with updates or anything like that. You know? Yeah. Yeah. You know, that was that was software distribution not that long ago. <laughs> Yeah. You know, boxes with disks that, you know, you'd mail out and then you could only do software updates every year or two because the real, raw cost of mailing all the CDs or disks was horribly expensive to maintain the software. Yeah. And, you know, some articles have come out following the fintech competition about advisors creating software products. And I think that's a huge contributor is just it's the tools allow us to spin something up so much more quickly. Yeah. than before it's going to give advisors those who are willing to make the leap and have some of the ability to code that the product the ability to bring stuff to market quickly i mean you're going to see stuff at fintech next year i mean we didn't exist until february kevin and i did not start building anything until february and then september we're yeah. demoing a product you know yeah so that that would have and we had nationwide distribution because all you need is a browser i mean that, that's an incredible development that i think is going to fundamentally change the way we, I mean the, the stuff that we're going to be using 5 years from now as financial advisors is going to look totally different from today and we don't yeah. even have a clue what it'll look like. Yeah. Well and I think it's it's often underappreciated like just how much of the software in our in our advisor technology space are are basically I mean I just I call them the homegrowns and it's virtually always the same story, the same formula, you know, a advisor has struggle in their business, can't find any good software for it, says, darn it, I'm going to make my own tool, makes it, uses it, friends hear about it and say, I want to use that software in my firm too, start selling the software to friends. And now you have a side software business. Yeah. And you know, that was Juncture, Redtail, ProTracker, Orion, Tamarack, iReval, TRX, Trade Warrior, Red Black, Tolerisk, Hyperchat social, like our advice pay platform. I mean, just the the number of tools in our space that are homegrowns is is kind of stunning when you actually go back to the origin stories for most advisor tech tools. And and I think it just comes from the fact that you know our 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 businesses are complex, our problems are kind of specialized, and you just you really need someone in the business who 
understands the problems intimately, right? As, as you lived being in a firm for 10 years and, and feeling the pain day to day, week to week, month to month, year to year about what a pain in the butt it is to review a client's tax return before you say like, darn it, there should be software that makes this less painful. And then you go make that exact thing. Right. We're small enough that the huge enterprise companies, when I was a consultant in my 20s, I worked for SunGuard, which is a huge, you know, and my, yeah. our implementations at these energy companies would be millions and millions of dollars. And so there's a lot of big money trying to create products for those industries. But for us, we're just not big enough for them. And so yep. software as a service is really, I think, going to change what we can, what, what we're going to see as a result. Yeah. You know, one, one book that, that Kevin and I both talk about a lot in our business, there's a book called Eat People, which is kind of a provocative title. But Eat People. Eat People. I can't remember the name of the author, but it's one of these like rich guys comes up with a book on his philosophy of life and some business advice. But We'll find it and put a put a link to it for anybody that wants to know more about eat people. <laughs> yeah, I'm not certain, I'm not endorsing the book. I'm just saying it it had some provocative ideas in it that were helpful for us. But one of them was if you have any desire to build a B2B software company, just look at what people have already built in-house. Mm. Because if a financial advisor or anyone has gone to the trouble of building, I mean we all have that Excel spreadsheet. I know that everyone listening has that Excel spreadsheet that has 18 tabs on it, you know? Yep. They all have, we all have it. And why? Because there was a, there was a hole in the existing functionality of whatever we've licensed. And so we had to build that spreadsheet. Yep. And for a lot of us, that was tax. But if you can build that thing that businesses have spent their own money to build in house, when that is not what they do for a living, that is going to be a product that'll take off. And I'm sure there's tons of little pockets like that still out there in financial planning firms that are yeah. ripe for someone to come in and, and make a really valuable product for them. Yeah. I mean, that was that was ultimately our story for advice pay as well. Like we just, you know, we took all these pain points that firms had around trying to get paid for financial planning fees and getting paid by check and handling the check and processing the check and clearing mm -hmm. the check and reconciling the check. And then if you're a multi-advisor firm, figuring out who gets which check. And if you're a broker dealer, you got to verify that the plan was delivered before you cash the check. And just like all these things that, that firms basically did with, with, you know, spreadsheets and really bad databases. And, right. and we just made a piece of software that solved the problem and, you know, uh, you obviously have to build it and execute it well if you want anybody to buy the software. But, you know, if you execute it well and you solve the problem, you know, sometimes it's pretty amazing how, how quickly growth can come. Because particularly when you're working with businesses of any size, if you're, if you're kind of in that enterprise world, you know, we are in an environment. While I, I, while I think the whole dynamic of robots placing and replacing advisors is very grossly overstated, robots replacing all of your back office staff is probably pretty true. Mm. And from a business perspective, the moment I can take software and replace what a human staff member does at a fraction of the time and what at the end of the day is an extremely repeatable process, which are the things that are conducive to software automation, you know, you, you get there pretty quickly. I mean, I think it's why today, as much as we talk about, you know, like, is everybody going to have to merge with a big firm in order to survive and the challenges of economies of scale? If you just pull out any actual industry benchmarking study, and you look at the success of high-income solo advisors today, 
solos are exponentially more profitable and successful than they were 20 years ago. Hmm. Like the, the technology isn't killing solo firms. Now you can run as a solo with a bunch of software. What 20 years ago would have taken you three part-time assistants <laughs> yep. to do all this stuff that you don't have to do in your firm anymore because you just click a couple of buttons as the business owner and poof, you're done. I've been fascinated by the opportunities of technology to solve a lot of back and middle office problems for firms, but e- even though I don't think it's much threat to the, the front office side of facing clients. Yeah. You know, when I think back, I said in my 20s, I did a lot of consulting work. It was a lot of software implementations and there was these big, you know, SAP and the huge, huge enterprise software products. And I think that, I think that Apple, the idea of just thinking about apps, like the idea that software could be small, that has helped us as well because that allows you to cobble, instead of buying one huge SAP that does everything, and in, in turn does nothing at the same time <laughs> for $10 million. Yeah. You can cobble together this best of breed approach and experiment with, I'm going to call it the appification of enterprise software. It really allows, especially solos to kind of, I mean, there were people I was meeting at that XYPN conference who were doing amazing things with automation in their firms. Yep. And it's stuff that big that the big boys would never be able to go back and do. I mean, they're 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 built in a way where they couldn't undo the things that they have. Right. And and those XYPN advisors built it based on these little Lego blocks of smaller products that kind of talk to each other. Yep. And it's really exciting. I was I was really amazed. The yeah. the annoying part is like <laughs> you get a box of Legos and you have to put them together to make a thing. <laughs> You know, we we try to give them, you know, Lego guides, as it were. But the cool thing is, like, at the end of the day, you can make whatever you want. That's, again, part of why I'm so upbeat about the potential of smaller and solo firms. Just the technology gets more flexible and more capable every year to just build exactly whatever efficient tools and things you need for your firm to be super focused and efficient at whatever it does. Yeah. Yeah, that was evident from, you know, the, the people who were there at the at the conference, for sure. And again, these are all kind of smaller products that are more specialized in what they do. Yep. You know, the, the challenge is, yes, getting them all to talk together. But the tools for doing that are a lot better than they were before. Because I think that when I think back to my 20s, everything had to be so proprietary. You didn't want, I remember we were trying to, I was working at the Italian National Oil Company. And there's multiple divisions and none of them wanted to talk to each other. And the software packages, I remember sitting in meetings, no one wanted to expose the API of their software to another software company because they felt they felt like that was a trade secret. We were all trying to hide it and keep it close to the vest because we uh. want to get the whole organization. But now, you know, APIs are out there on the web. You can just sign up for things. I mean, it's so much easier now that just the mindset of how software should interact with each other has changed. Yeah. It makes it also easier to this appification idea. That's that's been really fun as a developer. I mean, plugging into things like Stripe for our payments, plugging into MailChimp for automated emails. Right. The tools are really, really intuitive and easy to use. It's it's really fun. I think it, it, we're just scratching the surface of what we, what we can do with this stuff. Yeah. So for you know, someone that's now taken this leap and gone down the road of of trying to start an advisor software business, 
what do other advisors not understand about what it takes to actually start a software <laughs> advisor software business? For those people who are listening, like, I got a tech thing that would help other firms. Like, I want to do this too. Yeah, I mean, I think my situation might be a little unique in that I invested that time all those years ago and actually being able to be my own developer instead of having to contract it out. Mm. I, I'm, I'm trying to think how much more difficult it would have been for everything to be a conversation with some external developer. So I, I think there's probably some people listening who they're maybe scared to try it on their own. I, I'll just say to them, there are tools to rapidly prototype your own product. Now you can turn it, then turn it over to somebody who knows what they're doing. That's kind of the mm. stage we're in to try to make things prettier and stuff like that. But the core functionality, I was able to to build very rapidly with some of these these tools, uh, like the Django framework, things like that. But you know, if you believe in there's this whole lean startup methodology where you iterate your product, you put out your minimum viable product and kind of iterate it as you go. Yep. I have some moral problems with that because I don't like the idea of putting out a subpar product, but. Well, that's why it's, that's why you're supposed to get to like the minimum viable product. Viable like it does, product, yeah. It does actually have to be viable ideally. And, yeah. and it's probably a yeah. good point because there are, there are folks out there. I, I think that have adopted that lean startup mentality and like they don't they don't just try to create their minimum viable product like they create a thing that's so minimal it's not a product right right yeah i mean just you just create a landing page and if you get 100 people to sign up for your newsletter then you even start building the product like yeah. stuff like that but what i will say about lean methods is you know it's, you you can start with your friends and family i mean the way you described it was really smart which is I'm going to scratch my own itch. This is going to this is going to be something I can use on my own. I can test it within my own walled garden of my clients. And then I can reach out to my network of friends and just have them try it. Our our first 10 or so clients, subscribers, uh, let me say, were were all beta testers and they were free. Right. And they're still free. They're not paying me right now because that was valuable to me for them to use the product. And a lot of the great ideas were not our own. The idea of a client-facing report we didn't come up with that. Someone was like, Hey, I need something to show my client. I'm like, oh, okay. It's a good idea. <laughs> All right. I'll, I'll, I'll go make that. All right. <laughs> the, pro- yeah. the projection tool. And, you know, I, we had no plan to make that. And so I think you don't need to be a lone genius in your basement coding up the whole thing. And then it comes into the word world fully formed. You can iterate the product. You know, you have to earn the trust of your users, but you can iterate the product with them and build yeah. something that that they need. And again, the tools allow you to do that. You couldn't do that with shrink wrap software. You couldn't you couldn't iterate a product because you got to mail out a disk every other week. Right. But now you can do that. And so that that's my main advice is start with a prototype, a min, minimum viable product and get people to look at it because the wisdom of crowds is going to be smarter than whatever you come up with on your own for sure. What's surprised you the most about trying to go this route? Hmm. I mean, I'll tell you what surprised me. Coming from a financial advisory world where admittedly your clients are, you know, if you have a group of clients who understand what you're about and, you know, you've, you've kind of worked with them over the years, that's a really great relationship you have with them and one that is very meaningful. And I think that's why a lot of planners stay in the profession. And I, I did not expect in software 
to have any sort of relationship with the people who are subscribing to it, right? I just saw it as, oh, now I'm in this faceless, mindless numbers game where I'm right. just going to get credit cards and you charge the credit card and you get bug reports. But I was really amazed at XYPN, actually, people coming up to me and saying, hey, we use the software and like people actively rooting for us to to do well in that competition, for example. And so yep. that's been really fun is to, even for something as cold and not human as software, I think you just involve financial planners in anything. It's just an amazing community. And so that's been really fun is just how supportive everyone's been, people giving us great ideas, people telling us how you know, they were proud of us for winning the competition. And I, that's, that was really a surprise and, and, a, and a, a welcome surprise. It's been really fun. And so we just have to figure out a way as we grow, if we hit 500, 1,000, 10,000 users, how do we continue to make it feel like we belong to something that's important and is meaningful and is moving the profession forward? I'm sure it's a similar thing with you and XYPN. I mean, like it was, it was really cool to see that you've created a community of people who collectively see themselves as building something that's bigger than themselves, even when it's a for-profit venture, but you can have that, you know, and I should have known that from when I was a financial planner with my clients, but <laughs> I did not expect it with software. And I'm, I was pleasantly surprised by it. So anything you wish you'd done differently as you, as you look back through the process so far? Not so far. But we're only a few months <laughs> in. We're still figuring it out. Yeah. I will say one thing that we should have – well, I'll, I'll give you one thing. So Kevin and I, we are business partners. He's he's based in Virginia, northern Virginia. And I think we do a good job of communicating and working together. We spent one week together in Virginia in early August just to kind of get ready for XYPN and just get clear some stuff out of our backlog and it was like the most productive week of my life. It was amazing. <laughs> and so I think, you know, working with a remote business partner, the FaceTime is valuable in ways that it's it's really hard to describe. I mean, we've got all the best tools. We've got Slack. We've got email and phone. Yeah. But just sitting in the room with your business partner. So in hindsight, we probably should have gone to once a month as we were just launching. I think we can go to once a quarter now because we've kind of gotten in our groove and we know our which lanes we're in. So we probably should have done that earlier. We we probably would have been further along. Yeah, I'm sure I've made like a million other mistakes, Michael. But yeah. I, I don't. They haven't. They haven't manifested themselves. <laughs> yeah, they, yet. yeah. It takes a while for these for these things to manifest. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I, and I think again, it's a version of the. You know, your business only goes so far when it's a side hustle, right? You know, when. When you're working on it at eight o'clock at night, and then you know Kevin already went to sleep and doesn't get back to you until the next day, and then you work on a thing the next next day, like stuff kind of drags out. You can only work on things and get so much done quickly, and then suddenly you put everybody in the room together, and they're just all in focus on that thing. And like Zoom, amazing how much more stuff gets done once you're actually able to focus on it or, or focus on it together as business partners, right? especially on stuff like tax, like the, the brain power required for some of the, you know, I'm working on QBI right now and there's like a short form and a long form of the calculation. Yep. And like doing that by yourself after the kids are in bed, yeah. that's rough. That is rough stuff, man. And so I've kind of put a cry out to help for Kevin to kind of help me walk through it. 
and yeah, it's it's you know, financial planning, any any creative discipline, and financial planning is a creative discipline, and software design is as well. The more brains that you get in a room up to a certain point is always better. You're always going to come up with better answers if you get a few more brains, ideas right. in there bouncing off each other up to a point, and then you need to go off and do the work. But in any in any profession where creativity is part of it, and software and playing are both those, it's helpful. Just be in the room with the people. You got to do it. So any advice you would give to advisors who are not techies and not going to spend the next couple of years building their own software web apps to self self learn the programming that mm-hmm. you did, you know, for, for advisor, like I, you know, I see the gap, there's a thing, I know it needs to be created, like, I want to make it for my firm, and then I can sell it to others. Like, I've, I've got my homegrown software idea, but I'm just not a, a software techie person. Like, what, what would you tell folks that are, are in that camp? Like, they, they want to, they want to make the software, but they don't have the tech background that you built for yourself. So I think the goal is a prototype. And, you know, prototype one is probably on a piece of paper, or maybe it's in your head. But prototype two is probably Excel. And that might be within the capabilities of the this person that we're talking about. Mm-hmm. But then, yes, once we're starting to create a web app that's built in code, there are some really good, I mean, for the OCR thing that we're building, that's a very specialized type of programming. It's, you need very specialized knowledge to do that. Right. We went out to, I was looking at universities, I was looking all over the country, but there's a site called upwork.com. Yeah. And you can put stuff out there and you just have to wait. You got to be patient because the first five or six people are going to be trash. <laughs> If, if if they're that available and respond exactly. that quickly, it probably exactly. means they're not actually very highly employed. <laughs> exactly. But we got this guy, and I've used it for a couple other little projects, but we got this guy who, you know, he's he's been working on projects reading labels off of food products. And when you think about the challenge of that, you know. Yeah. Oh, God. The bottles are curved. <laughs> yeah. Can you imagine? Uh. And so – that has been really, really amazing to tap into that. But, you know, you, you got to, and so I would practice actually, I think any, any advisor, you know, you need to do a new logo or something like that. I get that some people will hire a $10,000 branding company, but there's also fiverr.com put three or four, hire three or four Fiverr things and say, make a logo for me. And one out of the four is going to be great. And three of the four might be trash, but you know what? You're out 50 bucks. Yeah. Like you're the, but you know the the origin of Fiverr was literally all the jobs cost five bucks. They're yes. a little more pricey now, but, but right. as you said, even if they're ten x the price, like if if you spent fifty bucks on two or three people to get one you know logo thing that's decent, like that's actually still a really 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 cost effective solution, even if some of them don't work. Yeah, and this is all this is all kind of lean startup type ideas. And by the way, that's probably yeah. one of the first things that goes on the list. I don't love the book Lean Startup. I don't think it's a great read. There's another book called The Four Steps to the Epiphany that I think predated the Lean Startup. Hmm. It talks about similar ideas of getting a some prototype minimum viable product out, but get it in front of people as quickly as you can because they're going to help you build it. And so, yeah, if you just want to start out, get a contract programmer and build the the yeah. most basic version of that vision that you have in your head. 
and get it in front of people. And they're going to tell you what they want. And your job as the expert is to say, okay, that's crazy. I don't need the flight simulator right. built into Holista plan. But this idea of a re- client facing report, that's a good idea. That That's your job is to, is to, to be the, the curator, I guess, of what the functionality is going to be. And then you can outsource. It's doable today. It's very doable. For folks who are listening, this is episode 145. So if you go to kitsis.com slash 145, we'll have links out to some of these books as well. Eat People and Lean Startup and Four <laughs> Steps to the Epiphany. If you're, so you don't have to worry about like writing the names of the books down as you're jogging or driving or cooking or whatever it is that you're doing as you listen to this podcast. Eating people, potentially. E- eating they people, potentially. So, I mean, I don't judge. <laughs> no judging here. So, Roger, what what comes next from here? Well, we need to, I think, you know, you, you asked about how far do you go on the projection tool. I think we're probably at 80-20 right now. I'd like it to take it to like 90-10 in terms of the tor- types of scenarios we can handle. So that we'll be working on. Later in the year, we've got a whole another set of tax returns. Mm-hmm. I've already looked at, I don't know if you've looked at some of the 2019 formats for the 1040, but they've changed it again. Oh yeah. I guess that, that really, that really sucks for your business. Like one line item that they change and like, you may have to reprogram a bunch of software to explain what that new number is on that line item and what to do with it. Yeah. And I got news for you. It's more than just a line item. They've, yeah. they've done some pretty big overhaul. It's not as huge an overhaul as last year as 2018 was, but they're changing quite a bit. I, I believe, for example, now they've given up on the fake postcard thing. So I think we're back to a, a page one and a page oh. two the way we used to have. All right. All right. That 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 piece is coming past. All right. So that's going to close out the year. But I'll tell you, like, I don't think our original vision for the product went way beyond tax. In fact, our first iteration, we were looking at insurance, but all the concepts that we were talking about, which is a decision engine, gather as much information you can about the client, you know, analyze that information and come up with you know, a, a, an intuitive way to present it to the client and observations that are useful to the client. That doesn't have to stop with tax. Now, we started with tax because there's so much information in a tax return and reading it in with software was comparatively easy, but we could do the same things with other parts of what we do as advisors. And so as I look forward to 2020, I'd like to start kind of thinking about how we address some of those other areas of financial planning. Interesting. And so that's why why at the end of the day, it's it's not called holistic tax. It's called holistic plan. (laughs) Like that's... Yeah, that's kind of the hints. We're 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 not finishing with tax returns. That's just where we started. Yeah, I think so. And because as we start to bring in other stuff, the observations can get ri- even richer, right? I mean, so if I like right now on a tax return, I can see that you have Schedule C income, and I can say, hey, you might consider doing a SEP IRA contribution or something like that, right. or you may consider starting a solo four hundred one k. But if I can also pull information in from the portfolio management system and I can see that you actually have a solo 401k, now I can do something even more interesting, which is right. And, and that's what that, that's what human financial advisors do is we bring all these disparate pieces of information together. Right. We don't even know we're doing it, but in our minds is this little algorithm pulling all that stuff in. 
And so how do we collect all the data efficiently and then use it all in ways that are more and more tailored to the clients? That's what gets me really, really interested. And I'd love to go beyond tax and do that for a lot more stuff. So now to me, like now you're starting to talk about stuff that gets a little closer to replacing some of what advisors do, or, or at least, you know, may, maybe not the lead advisor, but like you, you kind of potentially putting some paraplanners out of work now as you gather information, actually formulate observations around not just a tax return, but a, you know, in theory, like a wide full range of, of financial planning, you know, subject matter areas or topical areas, right? You know, you can scan insurance policies, you can scan estate planning documents and start dissecting wills and trusts. So do you view this as ultimately we're trying to replace parts of what advisors do? We're trying to replace part of what paraplanners do? Do you not actually see it as competition to advisors in the long run? Like where do you you know, if all this goes well and it compounds for five or 10 years of, you know, cool artificial intelligence enhancements, where, where do you, where do you see holistic plan down the line relative to advisors? Well, I, I think we're all, you know, advisors are already doing these things in places other than tax. I mean, my firm had a, to use a state as an example, we had a template estate diagram that we would use to kind of say, okay, this this piece on the first death is going into this trust. And we we had certain deliverables that were relatively standardized. And we had a checklist for looking through wills. And so all I'm doing is saying, again, find that spreadsheet with 18 tabs on it. And if we can replace that with something that's more intuitive and faster and never makes mistakes and doesn't crash, that's better for everybody. So I, I don't know about replacing human beings, but I think giving them a tool set that they're already using, but kind of pulling it all together in a way that's more efficient. And I, and I think, I think it'll, the idea is, can we do more with less? Like, I don't think any advisor is worse off if the software comes up with observations that they would have missed because I don't know, they're tired that day, didn't get their coffee, or they weren't looking at those three pieces. I mean, all of us, you know, you go to a conference and you hear people tell these case studies that are just absolutely fascinating of things they found. We never tell the case study the thing we missed because we just didn't see it because we didn't see it. Right. But that is happening. We're, right. we're all doing that. And so if we're going to truly be fiduciaries to our clients, we owe it to them to be as complete and thorough as possible, to take in as much information about them as we can. And, the, and our approach with the software, by the way, is we're just going to give you everything. And some of it is not going to apply to that, that client. I mean, I mean, one example I saw recently was we were talking about doubling up charity into alternating years. Well, I know, I know I have clients who they give to their church every month. That's part of what they do. And so the idea of doing lump sums every other year to the church just doesn't fit the way they, that's not the relationship with their church. And so it would make zero sense to make that recommendation to that client. And only a human is going to know, well, yeah, maybe not. Maybe the software one day could have a box that says, are they the type of person who wants to give every month? And then the software would know, but you know, there's limits to how far we can take. Yeah. Or, you know, or it takes the human to say like, look, if you're willing to lump up, 
with your church every other year, that's great. If you don't, like, okay, well, we're going to replicate that because we'll put in a donor advised fund. Then your donor yep. advised fund can do your monthly distributions. Yeah. But yep. but we don't need to donor advised fund if you're just willing to go every other year. So that I guess like that's where the the client conversation then comes back in. Like, okay, we get the principle of this, which is you might generate some tax leverage by doubling up your contributions, but what's your actual path to do this efficiently? Well, you know, now we still need the conversation with the advisor to figure out which one fits client circumstances. Yeah. I think you're always going to need a human running the levers, but you know, maybe so maybe the nature of how we do business as advisors will change with technology. And, you know, like if we don't build it at Holista plan, someone else will build it. And I'd rather we build it than Amazon build it and just put us all out of business. So I'm at least coming in trying, you know, I'm on the team at least. So I, I hope we can deliver that sort of, that sort of experience. Yeah. I think it's doable. So, but yeah, that that's longer term. I mean, obviously we got to get tax totally figured out and there's always going to be new stuff we can dig into in new forms. But when I think longer term, I, I really love the idea of what are normative practices across across the profession yeah. and what are the levels and some of them are going to be more conducive to automation than others. You know, reading wills is going to be very challenging yep. for software. It's not impossible I've already done some research on that. There are some companies that are doing that with say non-disclosure agreements. There are some standard things it looks for, but gets messy quickly. Yeah. Lot, yeah, totally. A lot of lawyers, a lot of different drafting styles. Yep. Yeah. 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 So, so as we wrap up, you know, this is a podcast about success. And and one of the themes that always comes up is just the word success means different things to different people. And so as someone who, you know, came into the business, became an advisor, you know, got equity, was on a succession track, what what a lot of people work towards as the end point of success, and then decide to go in a different direction to to find your your success. Like, how do you define success for yourself at this point? You know, I look at, I had a really good midlife crisis, I think. You know, when I look back, (laughs) when I look back to me as a kid, I always loved building things. I would play with electronics. I would build robots and stuff like that. And everyone was like, you're going to be an engineer one day. And so I went off to college and studied engineering. And all they had, all I did was math problems. I was like, forget this. Mm. And so then I spent 20 years doing other jobs that were fun and rewarding. Don't get me wrong. But what I realized was when I was building all that stuff as a kid, I wanted to create. I loved creating things. I loved building, putting things together. And so now I'm in a stage where that's what I get to do for my job is I get to finally, you know, there's nothing wrong with the other jobs I had. Don't get me wrong. But like now it's, it's the thing that fits me really well. And I think always has fit me better than anything else that I did. So to me, that's success. I mean, it's it's great to win the fintech competition, obviously, and and get my 15 minutes of fame. But I mean, I'm just really enjoying doing the thing that, honestly, if I look all the way back to the beginning, is is what I love doing and was meant to do. Well, very cool. It's a it's a cool feeling when you finally get the alignment that feels like I'm I'm actually doing the thing I was meant to do on this earth. Totally, totally. Yep. Talk to me in six months, though. We'll see how it goes after well, the tenth enterprise you know, <laughs> contract discussion. <laughs> yes, the joys of enterprise advisor software sales is a whole other conversation for another day. Yeah, I'm um, you know excited to see what the 
what the software brings and and what you guys can build. You know, again, I was I was fascinated with it from the the moment I saw it. I I see the need. You know, I can already see what you built. Like this absolutely has relevant application in in firms and what we really do. So super excited to see where it goes for you from here and appreciate Roger you joining us on the Financial Advisor Success podcast to talk about it. Well, thank you. Yeah, it's been a pleasure talking through all this stuff with you for sure. Absolutely. Thank you. Want even more ideas, tools, and resources on how to break through to the next level of success as a financial advisor? Check out the leading financial planning industry blog, Nerd's Eye View, at www.kitsis.com, where Michael covers the latest practice management trends and financial planning strategies. And by joining the members section, you can earn IMCA and CFP continuing education credits, along with exclusive member content. Get it all now at www.kitsis.com.